Lord God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to bringing us through 2021. We thank you so much that you are faithful and that as, as our songs reminded us today that you are not finished with us yet. That you still have more, that you're still pushing us forward, that you're still developing us and you're still, and you're still growing us. God, I pray that you would allow us to never forget the mission and the values that you have placed into us. It's like you're saying to us, Today, do you love me? And we turn to you and say, yeah, of course we love you. And, and, and you say to us, then, then feed my sheep. And so, God, I, I thank you for that word that comes through Lectio today. I thank you for, for your word. I thank you that you are the Messiah, Christ the Lord, come to live with us, to be with us, to show us what God is like in a person. And as we offer our offerings to you and as we listen for, for what you want to say to us through your word today, I pray that you would bless every individual. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, if you're engaging with us, uh, I also encourage you to comment on Slack and, and be engaged with the service and the sermon, um, and, uh, and I pray that you are encouraged. So last week, we, we touched poetically on significant understanding of, of Jesus being um, expected, but or anticipated, but not expected. There was a piece there that was like, yeah, we know something was going to happen, but we don't really know what it is. And so God's rescue was anticipated, but it was not expected the way it came. John 4, 21 to 26. It's a story of Jesus approaching a Samaritan woman and having a conversation and, uh, and, and we're jumping into the middle of it, so the text isn't, you know, 40, past 40 verses long. But John 4, 21 to 26 says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father, Jesus is speaking. You will worship, you worship what you do not know, and we worship what we know. He's comparing the, the uh, Samaritan worship with the Jewish worship. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. As Christians today, we oftentimes think of this as a, as a, as a verse that's like, oh yeah, this is, this is great. You know, Jesus is identifying as the Messiah. But what we don't recognize is that the people of God did not always anticipate a Messiah. They didn't. It wasn't always written in the history of the people of God. Sometimes we read the Bible with the end informing the middle and the beginning. So we read the Bible kind of backwards. We, we're like, here's the climax, here's how it all works out, and therefore they must have known it all the way along, but they didn't. They didn't know it all the way along, and this is, this is really uh, important for us to put ourselves in the mindset of the people of God so that we can understand Jesus. Because as we see God's unplanned plan unfold, we marvel at his brilliance, and we watch God's strategy in real time. I think that's a really unique way of thinking about God. God has a strategy, and he's been operating that strategy from the beginning 
all the way through all of human history, and he's still on it. Nothing has derailed him. See, the truth of God's revelation is much deeper than what our religious institutions focus on. It's so much deeper because oftentimes what we've done is we've packaged Jesus as this, as this ticket that forgives your sins and says, oh, yep, he's taking care of all of your bad and everything's going to be okay. And it's so much bigger than that. Jesus, Jesus was, was there as, as a person and he's doing more than just forgiving sins. So, why didn't Jesus come immediately? If, if Jesus was just forgiving sins, if he was just going to forgive sins, why didn't he come immediately right after Adam and Eve or maybe right after Cain and Abel? Why didn't Jesus just come and deal with the whole problem of evil? If he could have done it right from the beginning, why didn't he do it then? What's going on? Well, the truth is, Jesus didn't come immediately because God knows that salvation needed to be anticipated. God was working a strategy where he was like, I have to show my creation that I don't always want to be a separate God, but I want to be with them. I want to incarnate. Emmanuel is definitely part of God's strategy. Always has been, always will be. Somebody once asked me, you know, if Adam and Eve never ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would Jesus have come in person? And the answer is a resounding, that's impossible. Jesus was always going to come in person because God wanted to always be with his people. Always. The greater gospel, the greater good news, and the beautiful news of God is the God that created us wants to be with us. He wants to be with us, and that took generations to share that story. So today, we're going to go through it quickly to get us to the point where we're like, oh, okay, I get it. How did the woman at the well come to anticipate the Messiah. There are four key developments in the progress towards the Messiah. And if you don't know your Old Testament well, this sermon itself is going to help you frame your Old Testament in a way that you go, all right, I get it. So the first way that God starts to introduce this idea of God living with us as a person with us is right at the beginning. Now we first see the verse, it's in reference to uh, to the um, to the Exodus, but it's in Hosea eleven one. When uh, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The first move that God is doing here is that He is calling His people out of Egypt into a new land, into a new space where God is going to be the center of this world system. God's setting up what we would call today as a theocracy, God ruling directly. And he's setting it up and he's like, okay, here I am. I'm God. I'm powerful. I'm going to rule directly and I'm going to show that I'm more powerful than everybody else. Matthew 2.15 uses this verse to help us recognize Jesus. It says, 
this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken out of, by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's because Jesus, after he was born in Bethlehem, traveled to Egypt as a refugee tra- running away from government oppression. Literally, that's the story. So God calls Jesus out of Egypt. We have a point of recognition. God called Israel, the Hebrews, out of Egypt and said, I'm going to live with you, I'm going to be with you, and Jesus follows the same path. So now we've got a point of recognition. See, the story is there to increase our recognition of what is happening. The motif of God's action calling people out of slavery, being oppressed by an enemy, is what's happening. And so what we see with Jesus is Jesus being oppressed by an enemy government, And then God calls him out of Egypt back into this land. And so you see this parallel between the exodus of of Israel and Jesus coming to save. The second thing that we're hanging, that we're hanging this expectation of Messiah on is after Jesus, after God calls these people, the people of God out of Egypt, they have no expectation of a Messiah. They don't need a Messiah. They have the promise of God. They're going to be the people that bless everybody. So what we have next is we have these promises that they're going to that they're going to lean into. Israel is going to lean into them and the promises of Abraham. In Genesis 12:2 says God says to Abram, "And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing." He's talking about Israel who's been called out of Egypt. Now these people have an expectation that they are going to be the hope for the world. God rules them. They follow God's rules, Torah, the commandments. God blesses them, establishes them, and the whole world is now going to know God because of the people of Israel. That's the plan. That's what's happening. And so we've got this faithfulness of God, that God is going to do this. He will make you Uh, and you will be a blessing. And this is the central hope. This is the hope. See, the Messiah was, was always anticipated but wasn't expected the same way. What they were looking at is they're like, we are, because we follow God, we are the hope for the world. Here we are. And so it was the identifying marker for the Israelites. I am following Torah. I will do what God told me to do because he is my king, he is my Lord, I follow him. I don't follow any government system, God alone, a theocracy. And so they're the people of God and God's going to bless the whole world through them. So they're not the expectation of the Messiah, it creates the expectation that Israel is the, Messiah, is the Savior of the world. Someone just wrote, it's better to understand this as something that God was required to do. Oh, is it better to understand that God was required to do, or is it something that God decided to or took the initiative for as one chose among many options for the end goal of reconciliation? So yes, God wasn't required to do it this way. This was God's chosen strategy, that he's like, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to lead a people, give them an identity that says, you, out of you, the hope of nations is coming. You're going to be the hope of the nations. And so the third piece that happens, pick number three, my lord. 
The third piece that happens is, um, is a king eternally on the throne. Well, Israel was a theocracy. They're ruled by God. But as Israel grew, that became unruly because it was like, how do you know what God's saying? Sound familiar, people? How do you know what God's saying? How can we follow God? We've got this document that's written years ago now, and we're trying to sort it out as a nation. How do we follow God? Well, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to organize a government of our own. We're going to have a king. And, and you see the Bible's torn on it. Should we have a king? Should we not have a king? This wasn't something that surprised God. This was like, okay, this is the next step in the revelation of Messiah. God allows a king to establish inside of Israel. And then he, he brings David to the throne. David is a faithful representation of God at that time where he's going to rule justly and, and with wisdom and with the blessing of God. And Israel's going to bless all the nations. There it is. The plan's going to happen. David. King David. And so what happens is Samuel, the prophet, affirms David. In 2 Samuel 7, 11 to 13, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who will come from your body. Their direct lineage to David. I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house. This word flips with dynasty really, really easily. He will build a house or a dynasty for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Oh, okay. Whole nation, or one nation, whole world represented, whole world blessed because God wants to be with. Okay, king, but that king dies. There will be an eternal king. We have the very beginnings of, of an eternal kingdom, an eternal dynasty starting, an expectation. These people are like, Oh, okay, so there's going to be an eternal way that Israel is going to bless all the nations and God will be glorified through all of this. Okay, I see the links. We've gone from straight theocracy to a king to an eternal king. We're starting to get the beginning momentum towards a Messiah. So as history tells us, the, the lineage of David is closely guarded. Once David dies, everybody's tracking every single offspring that comes from David's house. Because this is the house upon which an eternal kingdom will be built. And Israel will fulfill the promise to Abram that all nations will be blessed. This is where we get the whole idea. It's not even there yet because this is, although it's a development in the expectation of a Messiah... We're still not there yet. We're not fully realized yet. So God is going to rule Israel through an eternal king, and God is going to bless the world through Israel. And now we get our fourth. The fourth happening is Israel and Judah, they actually split. It was one country of Israel, and then it split, becomes Israel and Judah. 
and neither of them are following God. The theocracy and the monarchy breaks down. And so now everybody's left with, what's God saying to us? I don't know what God's saying to us. I'm going to worship God over here on this mountain. I'm going to worship God on this mountain. And that's what Jesus is addressing with the, with the Samaritan woman. How am I going to approach God? Jesus says you're going to approach him, you're approaching God in spirit and in truth. And one day you will not have to worship God on a mountain. But the exile happens. Israel's defeated by Assyria. Judah is defeated by Babylon. And the exile happens. Now these people, these Jewish people, they're resilient. Did you know that exiles happened all the time? It was a common thing. That an, that an invading force would come in and the way to uh, decentralize the unity of the people was to spread them all throughout your conquered land. And it decentralizes them. And off they go. They go everywhere. And they have no sense of home or identity. And they're lost. And they're kind of feeling like they're doing church from home trying to get connected. But these people have an identity that is core They've got an identity that's like, no, the Israel will be the blessing of all nations. We are the people of God. But it's not happening the way I expected. So they're tracking the lineage of David. Where's this eternal king coming from? They are fully tracking it and going like, there's got to be an eternal king coming somewhere. Got to be a king coming somewhere because God is faithful. And if, I mean, if Israel falls apart, then God has abandoned the world. That's their perspective. And so they go off into what is now known as the diaspora. They spread all throughout the nations. And they start meeting in synagogues, reading parchments of the of, of, sorry, of, of Torah and the writings and the prophets. And they read things like this. Jeremiah 23 3 says, then I will gather a remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. So wait a second. There are Jews in every nation now telling the story of God, prepping for a national blessing. They don't even know it. But they have this promise that God's going to bring them back. God's going to centralize them. Once again, Israel is going to be the place. And all the nations are going to be blessed. The promise of God rising to the throne again happens in Isaiah 7, 14. They would have read this in the synagogue. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. So it's in the exile that the language of Messiah is born. The woman that starts our story off says, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. He when he comes, he will tell us all the things. And the woman at the well got her information from a full development of an expectation. 
a full generations-long strategy that God has employed in all of his wisdom in a way that he says that I will bring a king who is eternal. I myself will be that king. I will come in the line of David. I will be born as a child. I will live and I will die and I will rule eternally as king of kings and lord of lords and all governments will rest upon my shoulders. Jesus owns all of it and he says this is centuries in development. Centuries. And now as the gospel, the good news that God is with us comes and he continues to push on and he says he says there's an established center in all of these Roman cities of expectation of a Messiah. Throughout the entire world is an expectation that God is coming in a way that wasn't fully anticipated. The rescue was anticipated, but it was not expected. God still wasn't fully expected to personally show up on the scene as a baby. See, some modernists would say, oh, well, Christianity was just hope for wish fulfillment. It was just wish fulfillment stuff. Well, no, because they didn't actually expect that it was going to be God himself. They still thought it was just going to be a king that was going to come in, which is why you get the triumphal entry of Jesus on a, on a donkey. He's supposed to be the king, this guy who's going to overthrow Rome. No, no, no. They didn't expect God himself. See, the woman at the well saw Jesus almost exactly for who he was. She saw through the expectations, and she knew that when the Messiah came, that he was going to tell us all things. And Jesus comes on the scene. He's immediately identified as a king. You're from the line of David. You're set up to be the king. The wise men come and worship you and affirm that you're the king. You're supposed to be this king. But Jesus was more than, in, than he was anticipated. Jesus was way more than that. He showed himself to be the son of God in ways that were unexpected. John, the disciple that Jesus loved, tells us that he understood that Jesus was more than simply a human, but Jesus is divine. And now we get to the true gospel. The divinity of Jesus has shaped Christianity. It's Emmanuel in a new way. God isn't just an abstract or out there God who's far away only on a mountaintop but it's God who's with us just reading a slack message here so there's a question here and it's a little bit it's a little bit full which is awesome so I'm going to address it the theme I sense here is the gradual and subtle provision of revelation over time, often comprised of immense conflict and confusion over what's exactly forming, uh, almost dialectic process. So it's going back and forth, this, this expectation where, where God's planting a seed and then people are, are responding to it and then, and then it's happening. So 
the suggestion is maybe it's better for God's purpose to put the pieces together and figure and let them figure it out for themselves as if guided by grace rather than for God just to declare it all at once. So this is where absolutely God is saying, I'm not just going to come in absolute power and say, done. But what he is going to do is he's going to say, I have the power. I'm going to invite you into the process. And so he slows everything down. The biggest complaint I get about non-Christians telling me, how can you believe in God anymore, is because there's so much evil in the world. There's so much garbage happening in the world that you can't believe in God anymore. What we want to serve, what the world wants to serve, is a God who is efficient in power. Who just... who almost use a little bit too hard language, who just gets it done. That's the God that the world wants right now. Sorry, off note for a second, but this is really important. The people of God even tend to want a God who's efficient. Just get rid of evil. Get it done. Let's be done with this crap in the world. If you're so powerful, God, just finish it off. The God that we serve is a God of patience and love, and he is transforming people in the midst of evil, rescuing from the mire and the clay, rescuing instead of damning. He's saying, I love you, I will rescue you, I will not condemn you, and I'm calling out to you who are willing. And that's the message, but the God we want is a God who's just going to get it done. Heartlessly, ruthlessly remove evil. And when you think about that, if you really want a God who just is going to remove evil, how much of you is going to be surviving that? I much prefer a God who is patient and who is slow to anger and abounding in mercy to a thousand generations. Yeah, but it's so messy. Yeah, but it's a God of love who loves you more than you even know. So Jesus lives, in Jesus lives all of Israel's hope. Through Jesus, the entire world is blessed. The gospel is spread. The good news that God isn't just damning everyone to hell, but that Jesus has come to be our eternal king to lead us in the way everlasting. The one who died and rose again sits victoriously on the throne of God. And this is why the story of Jesus has changed humanity. It's not about a man who just came to die to take away the sins of the world. Yes, he did that. But he did so much more than that. It is through Jesus that we are blessed. God became man. And he solved the divide between humanity and divinity. He solved it. It's the constant tension we face. We want to think of God as far away. But he is with us even in our very breath. So I want to ensure you that you are included 
in the blessing to all nations. If you put your faith in Jesus, that you will be blessed. You are part of God's eternal plan. You are brought in, and God will purify you. He will remove evil from you. As you offer your life to him, he will allow you to divorce yourself of the evil and say, I, I don't want that anymore. And when Jesus removes it, we celebrate. Instead of being lost, oh no, that part of me is gone. We rejoice. And so the gospel is right here with us. Jesus is the fulfillment of the rightful heir to God's eternal throne, the one that was promised to David, the one that was promised to Abram, the one that was promised to Moses. Jesus wants to be with you. And so today, last Sunday of the year, will you accept Jesus as Emmanuel? Someone rightfully said the process of the removal of evil is painful, confusing, and it's difficult too. Absolutely true. But it's better than God doing it heartlessly by force, which would potentially kill all of us. And so God does it with our willing surrender and say, God, today is one of your children. I allow you access to the parts of my life that don't fit in your eternal kingdom. I allow you to remove them and give me an identity built in your eternal kingdom so that nothing this world brings can harm me because you have me eternally in your loving, patient, gracious hands. And so, Jesus, we commit our lives to you and we offer them to you and we say thank you. I pray that you are blessed as a congregation in, com in this coming year. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, Promise Church. Thank you for being a part. Thank you for watching online. And we look forward to hearing from you in the new year.